in today's sermon out of the text that was just read, I see four godly prayers that Christians who live in the foothills in 2023 could pray. It is a beautiful thing that events that took place 3,000 years ago relate to our lives today. The Word of God is living and it's active. So we are going to discover in this passage four prayers that you or I could pray. My suggestion to you at the outset here is I'm praying at the outset here that one of these four prayers will resonate with your heart. And you will pray this prayer today, the next few days, however long the Lord would have you pray this prayer. Now, of these four prayers, the first one is, I think, the most difficult. The first one is probably outside of most of our comfort zones. And so before we even get into the text, I'm going to give you, I do this occasionally, I'm going to give you my point before I preach the text. Is that okay? Say yeah. Say it's okay. That's okay. So here's my first point before we even get into the text. Lord, help me to fast and pray when desperate. This is the first prayer that we're going to see in verses 15 through 17. The first prayer coming out of these verses. Now, if you're older than about uh, three or four years of age, you've been desperate. You've had a time in your life where it seems impossible, almost, to escape defeat or depression or discouragement. And in those times, we need to employ extreme measures. And this is the kind of situation that David is in. He is desperate inside of himself, in his inner man, in his soul, in his deep, in his being. He is absolutely desperate. Now, if you're visiting with us today or you haven't been here, I'm going to set the stage to how he got to this place of being so desperate. It was late one afternoon. David was walking around on his deck. He should have been at work, but he wasn't. And he sees a very beautiful woman bathing. He sends uh, some of his people. We were talking about this this morning. Maybe like the sheriff deputies, if you will, uh, to, to investigate her. And he learns that she is the wife of one of his mighty men, one of his soldiers, who is incredibly loyal to David. He learns this, and he sends for her anyway. And she comes to the palace, and they commit adultery, and she becomes pregnant. And David is blind to his sin. He is blind to his own blindness, and he begins to live and act in a way that he comes to regret immensely. But for a season, he is blind to his blindness. And so we saw Nathan. God used Nathan 
to come to him with this exquisite parable. And he tells David this parable. And it, it brings David out of himself and out of this narrowness, this narrowness of what you see is all there is and in this blindness. David comes into the light and he repents and he begins to walk in the light. Nathan tells David that God has forgiven him. But there's going to be consequences, serious consequences, including the death of a child. So that's the stage being set. That's where we come to today. David has learned that God is going to judge this child. He is desperate. He loves this child incredibly with the kind of love only a father or mother can have for a child. And so David is incredibly desperate inside of himself. And that's where we pick it up today, the passage that Curtis just read. So take a look with me. Hopefully you have your Bibles or your devices open to 2 Samuel 15. We're in the middle of the verse. It says, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David. Notice how she's described here at the beginning of this passage. Uriah's wife. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. This, this whole unit of Scripture has been difficult for me as a reader. And so I want to share, I, I did this already this morning with those who were praying in my office, but I want to share just a little bit with you from a reader's perspective here. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, we go back to verse 14 where it says, the, the Lord, uh, the, the son born to you will soon die. Now, as a reader, when I read that, my, this is my, my response. And this is probably a sinful response, but this is my response. I don't know if it's sinful. This is my response. God, did you, did you get the wrong person here <laughs> to kill? Like, if you're going to kill somebody, maybe not the baby. Maybe David. That, 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 that's my response when I read this. And so, when the Scriptures don't seem to say what I want them to say, I kind of have a problem going on inside of me. The Bible is without error of any kind, and this word is sufficient for us. And so we sometimes have to help ourselves understand the emotions and the reality of what we're, what we're dealing with, what we're reading. In a, a very often cited uh, 2001 article by Jonathan Haidt, he, he says this. He says, the emotional tail wags the rational dog. And what happens, to me at least, is the emotions get going, especially as I enter into a story like what we have been reading about in 2 Samuel. And if you actually think of these as historical events, which they were, and you enter into the story, oh my gosh, there are emotions here. There are emotions here. 
And I have to remind myself that I am not God and I'm not sovereign. And that my emotional tail is wagging myself in my reading of Scripture. And so I have to, I'm just sharing with you how I'm processing this passage. Your, your emotions or your mind might be different, but how I process this passage is I need to go to a place like Romans 11 that says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. This is a rational way for me to respond to this text and a rational way for me to respond to all sorts of things that happen that, that I, don't, I, don't, I don't get. For who has known the mind of the Lord? This is in all capital letters because it is quoting Isaiah and then quoting Job. Who, who became his counselor? This is how I rationally need to think when I come to a text like this. I am not God's counselor. He is perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. And in God and his sovereignty has decided to strike down this child. And David, I can connect with David's emotions here. I can connect with the desperateness and the agony of what David is feeling. So, back to verse 15. Back to verse 15. Well, yeah, let's just move on. Let's move on to verse 16 and 17. So, uh, the Lord has struck this child, verse 15, and he's become ill. Verse Verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into, my particular translation here says, his house. Anybody else have that translation? Raise your hand. A few of you. Just a few of you. So this is an unusual thing for me to do. This is very rare, but let me just say, you can, you can cross out his house. <laughs> so the Bible is an inerrant, in, in without error, in the original, in the Hebrew text here. But this is actually a mistake if you happen to have that in your translation. Most of you don't. And so this is the old NIV. The newer NIV has corrected this. So he didn't actually, he fasted, but he didn't actually go into his house. So if you have a more recent NIV, that's been corrected. He didn't go into his house. He went outside and he spent the night lying on the ground. He's in the dirt. He's outside. He's pleading with God for the life of this child. And he spent nights outside doing this on the ground, praying. This is a desperate man who is crying out to God in verse 16. He's so desperate. The people that care about him are are concerned about him. Look at verse 17. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, from the dirt. But he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. We're going to learn in a moment, he, he did this for seven days. He laid in the dirt, and he sought God in fervent prayer and fasting because he is desperate 
He is desperate. This reminds me of another situation. Our evening women's Bible study is studying the book of Jonah. There is a pronouncement of judgment here in 2 Samuel 12. It's not an eternal judgment. It's a judgment upon this child because of what David has done. There's a judgment in the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. A message of judgment. What happens when this message comes? Many of you know the story. Continuing in Jonah 3, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. This is what they did in the ancient world. They fasted and prayed and put on sackcloth and ashes. Who knows, Jonah 3, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. There was a desperateness among these people. And they repent, and they pray, and they fast. And what happened? Did God show them mercy? He did. He did. They met him. They fasted and prayed in their desperateness. And they met God there. And sometimes... God gives us what we are asking for. But sometimes he does not. In either case, when we are desperate, we need to fast and pray. And so I am suggesting that the Bible very clearly for the reader for the Christian reader in 2023 that one way to apply this passage today is to say, Lord, help me to fast and pray when I am desperate inside. Jesus assumed that his followers, that is you and me, that we would fast. So if you have never fasted, I would encourage you to, particularly when you are desperate of soul. You may You probably should not fast, as we're going to see here that David did it for seven days. You probably should do it for maybe a morning or an afternoon or something if you have never fasted before. But the Bible teaches that Jesus' followers fast, and this text is speaking to us today about someone who is very desperate, needs God's presence, needs God's grace, and he fasted and prayed. So Jesus in Matthew 6 says, but when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As I've already said, that reward does not mean fasting is not like a a vending machine where we get what we want. It doesn't mean that God is going to answer your prayer the way that you want. What it does mean is if you fast and pray is that you are going to meet him. 
You are going to see him. You are going to know him. You are going to spend time with him. You are going to learn that he is sufficient in your life, more sufficient and more necessary than food. Man and woman does not live on bread alone, but by the very word of God and by God himself. And so this is one of the ways that we are called to respond when we are desperate. This is the most difficult of the four prayers that I am suggesting come out of this passage. The first one is, Lord, help me to fast and pray when I am desperate. It is what David did. It is what the disciples did. It is what Jesus' followers do when we are desperate. So David did this for so long that the people around him were extremely concerned about his well-being. So let's see, we've made it to a verse um, 18, right? 18. So on the seventh day, this is likely the seventh day after the onset of the illness. Not completely clear, but this is probably the seventh day the onset of the illness, seventh day of fasting, and the child died. David's servants, these are people who love David and care about him, they are afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. They are concerned about him. David's a smart guy. He's observant. So David noticed that these servants, these people who love him, were whispering among themselves. He puts two and two together. He realized that the child was dead. But he wants to know for certain. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up, got up from the ground, from the dirt, where he has been for a week. I mean, enter into this text. Think of this as a movie. Someone you love and care about is lying in the dirt for a week and hasn't eaten. After he had washed, he put on lotions that would have been normal for a well-to-do person. This was like brushing your teeth for us or something. He put on lotions, he changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord or the tent of the Lord, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he worshipped. He worshipped. <laughs> Let that hit you. He has been so desperate. He has been fasting and praying for a week. He has been grieving. He has been grieving the illness of the child that... that was projected by God to be ending in death, but he's thinking perhaps God will show mercy. That isn't the case. And at the end of this, he gets up and he worships. This is what can happen when we spend time with God and discover that he is our greatest treasure and that he is sufficient and that he will strengthen you in incredible ways. He worships. This reminds me of something else in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We've looked at Jonah. Some of you may know where we're going by God's providence. We sang part of this passage of Scripture as the first song in our worship set today. 
Job chapter 1. Some of you may not be familiar, but in a moment, in a moment, Job lost his children. He had 10 children. He had a robust, beautiful family. You know, you visit some people, particularly if they have a lot of children, and their family, in this context, in an agrarian society, on a farm, a ranch, a vineyard, they all work together, they live here, live there, this beautiful family, seven sons and three daughters. This is what an ancient Israelite's dream of a father would be to have a family like this. And in a moment, he loses all of his children, ten of them. Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground. And what? What did he do? He worshiped. Who can do that? No one apart from God meeting you in a desperate place. He worshiped. He worshiped in his desperateness, in his agony, in his grief. He worshiped the same God who helped Job worship, that helped David worship, can help you worship when you are desperate. That same God is alive today and operating in our lives. He said, Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang those words not too long ago. So David has worshipped. We see that fasting is not a quid pro quo. It's not like if you do this, you're going to get that. David did not get what he wanted, the life of his son. But David experienced the power and presence of God, and he worshipped. We're in the middle of verse 20. So then he went to his own house, which was the palace, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. He had to request it because this isn't normal in ancient Near Eastern culture. When your, child's die, when your child dies, you don't eat normally. David is doing things a different way here. And this is saying something to us. He is not following convention and culture. Verse 21, his servants asked him about it. Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. They're confused. They're confused because that's not what ancient Near Eastern Israelites did. They fasted for a long time, maybe for a week, after the loss of a child or a loved one. So David responds to them, verse 22. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Of course not. But I will go to him. I love that phrase. There is a lot here 
I will go to him. What is this referring to? I suggest this is referring to a future relationship in the new heavens and the new earth, which David has a very limited understanding about compared to us living 3,000 years later in the New Covenant and the New Testament, but he knows that his soul has continued to exist. And David is saying, one day I will go to him. I will be with this child that I love so much. I can't bring him back. David has grieved and wept and prayed and fasted. And he knows that God met him in that prayer and that fasting. And he knows that this boy is not coming back, but that he's going to go to him. But he will not return to me, but I will go to him. This is hope. The word isn't here, but that's what this passage is all about right here. That's what this is about. David found hope in the seven days of fasting and praying. He found God. And so when it's over, he worships. He actually goes to corporate worship and he worships and then he eats, which people in that day would have thought is almost like not sinful, but like this is crazy. This is not what we do. David is grieving with hope. The text is not saying that he's done shedding tears, that his grief is over. But David has had a significant season of growth that has come through prayer and fasting. One commentator writes this. He says, David's reaction to the death of his child is an act of profound faith in the face of the most precious taboos of his people. In other words, he's doing everything exactly backwards from that culture in that day commentator goes on. He says, David had discerned for whatever reasons that the issues of his life are not to be found in cringing fear before the powers of death, but in his ability to embrace and abandon. He's embracing God. He has abandoned the hope of being with this child whom he loved. To love and to leave, to take life as it comes, not with indifference, but with freedom, not with callousness, but with buoyancy. We see the buoyancy of David. We see a man who has worshipped now and who is filled with hope and knows that he will one day see this child whom he loved so much. So the second prayer out of this passage, I'm asking you, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to lead you to latch on to one of these four prayers The second one is, Lord, help me to grieve with hope. Help me to grieve with hope. David is grieving with such hope that those around him don't even understand what is going on. Back to our text. We're at verse 24. This is where my my emotions, again, I'm I'm just being honest with you. I'm like, really? Really? Like, I just, this is just surprising to me. So then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. So the, the, the honor students or the, the careful reader here, how, how was she described at the beginning of the unit of Scripture? Uriah's wife. 
and, and now, third rows are allowed also. Um, so now, David comforted the Holy Spirit who inspired this text. David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. Again, I don't know if you're like me, but my emotions are like, uh, no, David didn't deserve Bathsheba. And David, if someone's going to die, it doesn't seem like it should have been the child. I'm just sharing my emotions to you, which are needing correction from the word of God, from Romans 11. Back to our text. So David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went and went, he went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. The Lord, Yahweh, loved him, loved Solomon. So we're seeing God's stamp of approval on this, beginning at verse 24. The way she's described, his wife, they have a son, and the Lord loved this son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. Verse 25, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan that the that, uh, sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. Well, of course, they named him Solomon, and God says to name him Jedediah. I don't, somebody needs to help me with this later. <laughs> so Solomon has two names. The Lord named him Jedediah, and they named him Solomon. And which one seemed to, to have stuck? Solomon. So maybe one of you can help me figure that out. I, 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 I'd love to say, now let me explain to you why these, I have no idea why this child has these two names, Solomon and Jedediah, and why Solomon stuck, and Jedediah didn't. All right, so uh, what we see in verses 24 and 25 is something, at least to me, is very surprising. It's unexpected. And the Lord loved him, that phrase, about Solomon or Jedediah. It hints at Solomon's future role as king. God's grace has triumphed over David's terrible sin. The line promised to David will continue through this son of David and Bathsheba, and from this line, the Messiah will eventually come. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Again, I'm just revealing myself to you and my arrogance, like, God, did you get this all right? Like, did you kill the right person? Are they supposed to be married after he did this? Not only are they to be married, but the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come from this couple, Mike. <laughs> Do you think I know what I'm doing? God is saying to me as I'm preparing to preach the sermon, that's what happens to me during the week. I know what I'm doing. The Messiah the lineage of Jesus goes back to David and Bathsheba. Oh my gosh. Matthew 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the greater David, the son of Abraham. And then if we jump down to verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David, David, was the father of Solomon. I don't know why it doesn't say Jedediah, but David was the father of Solomon, 
whose mother had been, (laughs) past, had been Uriah's wife. To me, the word isn't here, but this just screams grace, grace. God redeems David's life, this marriage, this relationship that started with such evil and lust. God has taken it and blessed it, made it extraordinary. So third prayer. Again, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will have you link with at least one of these prayers and pray this prayer today, tomorrow, I don't know, as long as the Lord would have you pray it. Lord, help me to believe that grace can triumph over any sin. And God has been working on me that I'm somewhat of, as one of our former elders used to always say, uh, his name was Wayne, he would say, Wayne, I'm a, my name is Wayne and I'm a recovering Pharisee. And I think I am also a recovering Pharisee because I have an emotional tendency, at least, to want to edit the Word of God. And God is operating in ways that are unfathomable to me. And the Messiah is going to come through this marriage of David and Bathsheba. God's grace can triumph over any sin in my life, in your life, no matter how big or how grand, and this is a big one, This is a grand one, but God's grace is better, bigger, more profound. That's how David was able to get up and worship. That is how David David was able to have hope after this terrible, terrible thing happened to him because he met God, just like the Ninevites. They met God. For them, God answered the prayer the way they wanted. For David... He, he answered his prayer the way David didn't want because God is doing something unfathomable. And the emphasis here is on Solomon, on Jedediah. All right. Last few verses I want to summarize. Uh, 26 through 31 is our last few verses. I'm not going to go through these verse by verse, but let's summarize what 26 through 31 say by looking at verse 29 itself. Verse 29, so David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. So for those of you that have been here in recent weeks, here's a question for you. So when David was walking around on his deck late one afternoon, he should have been out with the army. And the end of this unit David is out where he should be. He is the commander-in-chief. And he has mustered the entire army. And he has gone himself. He didn't stay back at the palace. And he attacked and captured it. Others did the work. But David shows up on the battlefield. And he does his job. He is finding joy and fruitfulness in doing what he should have been doing way back at the beginning of 11 in chapter 1, late one afternoon, he is now doing what he should have been doing. And one other crazy comment here, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't seen this in a skit or VBS or anything, but he ends up putting on uh, a, a crown from the, the king that they have, have captured their land and, and, and taken them out. He puts on their, their crown and says um, in verse 30, it, it was a talent of gold. That's 75 pounds. 
I wanted to bring a 75-pound crown today and see who could, who could hold it on their head. So that's crazy. A 75-pound crown on David's head. He's back on the battlefield. He's back where the king should have been instead of cruising around on his deck uh, late one afternoon. So Lord, help me to find joy and fruitfulness. David was a soldier. He was a military commander. He is finding his place. And so I'm just broadening that circle. David is finding joy and fruitfulness in life after a serious sin, after a season of anguish, after being desperate. It began with his fasting and praying. And God in his grace has showed us how God was doing something extraordinary as the Messiah is going to come through something that none of us would write the script this way. How's the Messiah going to come? He comes through the line of David and Bathsheba. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we all need help. Most of us living as on a global scale, pretty comfortable lives. Pretty comfortable lives. And in our comfort, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have neglected your word. Where Jesus says to us, his followers, when you fast, uh, don't be a showboat about it. We have neglected this discipline of prayer and fasting, Lord. Some of us need to pray that you would help us with that. Others of us, God, we are desperate for hope and we need your help to grieve with hope. Others of us, we may have, like David, sinned in great ways and we have allowed the enemy to think of ourselves as as lame or not redeemable or whatever. But God's grace is so mighty that David comes back to life. And God, in your sovereign grace, chose to make the Messiah come from this union of David and Bathsheba. Lord, help us be restored to joy and fruitfulness after difficult seasons of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.